Welcome to the Golf Drifter podcast. As always, plenty of golf activity to discuss and we'll get to golf in a second. But firstly, just a slightly sombre note to start the week on. Um, as you know, we're all great sports fans and, uh, and that being sports fans means loving all sorts of sports, one of those being cricket. Uh, this week, boys, the uh, death of Shane Warne came as quite a shock to all, I believe. Oh, I couldn't believe it. Honestly, Saturday morning, I think it was, uh, I just caught the tail end of the news when I turned it on and hadn't didn't hear the, the announcement, but just heard them referring to Shane Warne in the past tense and thought there's something going on here and got to golf and, and ha- had a look at my phone. And honestly, it just felt like someone had punched me in the stomach. It was just, yeah, I, I, I don't think I can remember another sports person maybe in my life that I've, that, that's, that it worked that's affected me like that actually I just yeah I was really in shock couldn't believe obviously a young man which well youngish 52 so that's always a little bit uh sobering but uh certainly yeah it's a uh it's a tough one to take Vaughan yeah it is a tough one to take um yeah I mean as a player on the field he absolutely destroyed the black caps more times than I can remember and I used to yell and scream at the television at him in anger. And I think the only time that I got any joy from him was when he got out for 99, caught in the, in the outfield by Mark Richardson. Uh, it was about the only time I think I genuinely got any joy. But I think what I really loved about Shane Warne actually wasn't so much his playing career, was actually his commentary career afterwards. And in the last few years, obviously, there's been a lot of controversy around the Australian cricket commentators and what a bunch of a-holes they are across the board. And I think, to be fair, they are. But he was not during that time, and he has not been ever since. He's probably the most fair, down-the-middle, clever analyst that we've seen in, in the game. And outside of Richard Benoit, I, I think the best commentator I've, I've certainly seen in cricket. Um, and that's what I probably remember of will remember Shane Warne for him a little bit more than his on-the-field stuff, which is obviously unbelievable. But, yeah, it was a real punch in the guts. Interesting you mentioned commentary and down the line, and actually probably at times for an ex-player, who often ex-players can be a bit a bit safe, not wanting to sort of get stuck into their teammates or, or people they've played against. He very much called it the way he is. I mean, that was a thing I was thinking about in regards to golf. You hear a lot of ex-golfers kind of on commentary. I mean, generally speaking, you'd probably say they're relatively boring. Is there any golf commentators that come to mind that kind of aren't scared to be a bit a bit controversial if that's what it takes? Point one out to me if you can, because, yeah, they all seem very, very safe to me. Um, I think that guy Colt Nost is maybe introducing a little bit of, little bit of that, but a lot of them to me play very, very safe or, or kind of try and play the clown role, the, the kind of David Ferretti, Gary McCord thing, which personally I think is actually worse than, than playing safe. So, yeah. Randall Chamblay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was great, thinking, point, I mean, great was he Is he a good golfer though? I guess I'm looking uh, for, I mean, like And I guess he's more of an analyst than a commentator too, isn't he? Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yep. but yeah. Yeah, I mean, Nick yeah. Faldo would for me be the closest, I, yeah. I guess, to see it. And, and I mean that in that, you know, he's a true elite player of the game. So when he says something, you'd listen to him, just like Warney. Um, mm. And he sometimes comes up with some some fairly good takes. But, yeah, across the board, golf analysts and commentators are pretty safe. But I think Nick Faldo would be the closest for me. Yeah. There was a really good um, really good thing I saw on Twitter this earlier this week after the, the final round of the Bay Hill. And Paul Azinger, who was one of the commentators on the weekend, is not a guy that I ever liked as a golfer, and I certainly don't like him much as a commentator. Um, but they were playing, might have been, I think it was 15 at Bay Hill, which is the par five. Um, there's one where they have to drive across the water. 
and it just out of just out of nowhere just dropped the comment that um, that Tiger Woods was by far the best the best driver of a ball of a ball or the best at no the, sorry the best at hitting fairways in history on par fives. And somebody on Twitter had done the research and had found and had gone through and of the 235 players that had played or whatever, he was ranked something like 189 out of 235 in that stat. It was just like so far from being correct. But I mean, it sounds good and everybody just assumes it's right. But yeah, you just did not have a clue. Brilliant. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Oh, well, I mean, we better... Uh, sorry to hear about Warney. Obviously a man that we all... Uh, yeah. It's interesting for an Aussie that you actually... I've, I've mentioned before that I don't particularly like any of them when it comes to sport, but he is one guy that certainly um, and that, you have to respect. And, yeah. and that team that he was in, really, in the in the the mid to late 90s, when he was there with, with your Hayden and Langer and Ponting and... Uh, and McGrath and Brett Lee and, and all the others was probably, I, I think, maybe apart from the, the West Indian team of the late 80s, which I didn't probably possibly didn't appreciate as much, was to me the, the greatest cricket team of all time. So, yeah, he was, I and, did, and uh, he was the, the top man. I did spot a, um, a first page of his documentary, someone, uh, not his documentary, his biography, someone posted on uh, on Instagram, the first page I had to read. It sounds like a hoot. It might. It's convinced me to try to get a copy, but uh, I have actually. I've got a copy sitting on my bookshelf. So next time, if you, next time I see you, can you're welcome to borrow it. Yeah. And there right. is a fantastic um, there's a fantastic documentary on Amazon Prime called Shane. Uh, yeah, which it's really dropped, good. Only dropped about a month ago, which is well yeah. worth a watch too. Yeah, and very interesting in that. Just not wanting to labour the point, but um, he admitted that the, the Gatting ball, which really defined his career, was a total fluke. Well, I think any time you throw the ball up, uh, you're yeah. probably the best part of about two feet outside league. Um, it's not something you generally yeah. expect to come in like no. that. But, uh, no. Yeah. yeah. Superb. And uh, in mm. golf drift, the news, actually, myself and Grant will soon be living very close to each other. So what amazing things will come of this for the golf drift brand. We might be able to <laughs> come to the studios, Grant, and record in person. Oh, well, that'd be odd. I know. Yeah. I, a, what, I, did we, what did we figure out? About a, probably a, a, a driver and pop... About an eight iron, maybe from from your place. Uh, let's let, let's say an, an off hit, sort of a, a, a slice driver and a couple of topped uh, three woods will be about that'd there, be I reckon. It. Yeah, that'd be it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a shank, yeah. a shank seven iron to finish or something yeah. like that. We should get yeah. there. Yeah. Um, nice. Yes. Okay, men. Right. Let's talk about some some golf, I suppose. Bay Hill, the Arnold Palmer Invitational. Uh, won by Scotty Scheffler, quite a few talking points out of that. It was definitely a, uh, an interesting tournament for us three. We all had horses in the race uh, coming down to the end. I had Woodland, I'm, I'm sad to say. He really blew it. But we all had horses kind of competing. Um, I suppose the first big takeaway, and, and, and it's an interesting one because players, they can't seem to win with players, but Rory's been on record saying too tough. Can't have courses like that on the last couple of days. Is that you know, a little bit of... Uh, now, poor loser. I mean, he did he did fade away pretty bad, but was it too hard? Of course, it's not too hard. My God, they're getting paid millions of dollars. Toughen up, princess. Um, of course, it's not too hard. It was fantastic. You can't tell me that the finish of that uh, of that event as a viewer didn't have, like you say, have all of us on the edge of our seat. Brilliant. Yeah, get over it, Salpus. Yeah, I was very interested. I, I don't know. I've only caught a couple of comments. I haven't seen the full interview, but from what I understand, he was quite scathing of the of the conditions. And, you know, I feel like, you know, what is the ultimate goal of a tournament? We complain when it's 25 under, or certain people complain we don't because we just take the scores for what it is. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, it was daunting, some of those last holes. In fact, 
They oh, didn't yeah. necessarily look that hard at times, but what it was was rough. They really couldn't control the ball out of. And I suppose we've always said if players can't control the ball out of the rough, these guys they can't, they tend to look like us pretty quick. Then don't hit it in the rough. It's quite simple. Keep it keep it in play. Um, Scotty Scheffler obviously either kept it in play a little bit better than everyone else, or he controlled his ball out of the rough a little bit better. I mean, stop stop your bitching and moaning and just get on with it. Uh, great event. Uh, one of the best regular season events we've had in a long time. So, yeah, I've got yeah. no sympathy for Rory. I, I, I don't agree, actually. I, I, um, I didn't really particularly enjoy it. I, I, yeah, it was a, you know, the players were going up and down the leaderboard. I, I, I sympathise with a few of the players in the comments I've heard today in that they, they, I don't think they're, they're not complaining about being punished for bad shots. They're complaining about not being rewarded for good shots. And when you've got greens like those that were ultra, ultra baked and, and fast and just weren't holding, and then you've got very, very penal, quite long, rough, very close to the green, that's, that's not a great recipe to me because you, you, can hit a, you can hit it into the fairway and you can hit a great shot into the middle of the green and it doesn't hold the green and you end up somewhere almost unplayable. And to me, that's not really rewarding good play. That's, and I, that was the, the complaint that I heard Rory make, uh, Harry Higgs and a couple of other players. Similar sort of thing is, was more that. It's not, it's not yeah, we, we, we want it to be easy. They don't want easy courses, but they just want courses that reward good play. Um, and I, I kind of felt it was maybe a bit the same with Honda last week too. Um, yeah, that's, I, personally, I, I would rather see guys winning tournaments by making bogeys coming down the, sorry, birdies down the stretch than, than holding, off, holding on or, or making fluky pars or, yeah, that's just, that, maybe that's just me, but that, that's the way I look at it, yeah. That's a fair point. I mean, I feel like it's a real fine line for these, that, you know, the greenskeepers or the guys that set up the courses because for these guys, when it gets easy, they just destroy it. And it appears to be the moment it gets, you know, semi-tough or, or very tough, obviously they start to complain about not getting rewarded because they are so good that they can pinpoint shots and have them spinning all over the show on command. So it must be incredibly hard to get that, oh, yeah. that yeah. balance right. I mean, what does the, what does that ideal tournament look like for you? I mean, for me personally, like I don't, I just don't care about the score they finish at. I want to see holes that are risk reward. Now, whether that's par fives, par fours, you can drive. Those are my favorite holes. Ones where you've got to make choices. And I don't care whether the end results 20 under or two under, but I want, Risk-reward holes. That's really what it looks like to me, and that's how I'd set up a tournament. So I probably do like to see players struggle a little bit, um, and I probably don't know enough about when they talk about good shots being not rewarded. I don't necessarily know what a good shot looks like that they're talking about, but I, I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, what, do you, what does an ideal tournament look like to you? Something that's got a great finish at the, at the end of the day, and whether that's 20 under or 2 under, Something that gives you intrigue down the finish. And, you know, I guess you had your chances. The players had their chances to make to make their birdies on the back back nine at Bay Hill. You just don't get them on 17 and 18. Like 17 and 18, you want to, if you can make two pars, you're doing okay. And that's what Scotty Sheffler did. He went par, par, and that was good enough. Um, so you had to make your run earlier and then hold on. Gary Woodland, dare I say it, he would have won if he could have if he could have held on on those last two holes. He would have won the tournament. Um, and he didn't hit a bad shot on seventeen. He was probably four feet away from being ten feet from the green. Instead, he got plugged in the bunker and couldn't get himself out and made double. Um, 
yeah, what's a good event? A good finish. I just want a good finish. Do you think then it's yeah. more about a course? I mean, a good course, I believe. Nothing better than a risk reward par five to finish a course. Yep. So if I think of good finishes and good good courses, to me, I always come back to Augusta, right? And the, and the, and the saying they have is the Masters doesn't start until the back nine on the last day. And year after year after year, it produces brilliant finishes because it's got a back nine that is full of drama. It's got a couple of par fives. It's got that the par three sixteenth, uh, and you've got seventeen and eighteen. How many times have we seen players birdie eighteen to win the tournament? It may, maybe it's it's iconic because we see it every year and we we know it so well. But but that's the kind of thing to me. It's a recipe where guys can come can come through the pack on that back nine. Um, and, and win a tournament. And that's, I guess that's really what I want to see is guys winning a tournament rather than trying to hang on and not lose a tournament. It makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, once again, it's a fine line, isn't it? Because the, the setup of a course, I mean, you could get it off even by a, a fraction and the guys at the front just run away with it if they're playing best. I mean, often you, you want a situation where the last guys, and traditionally later in the day, they seem to have the toughest course conditions, mainly because these guys are so good with a fresh golf course. But clearly you want those guys early in the day to also have a chance to make a run. So, I mean, it's Which tough. they did, didn't they? I mean, I, yes. I think, was it Lucas Herbert got in at like minus two or minus, yeah. I think it was minus two. And there was a, a chance there with like an hour or an hour and a half to go where he looked like he might actually be in, in with a show of the, of the playoff or even to win it outright. Yes, no, absolutely. So um, we should start discussing positive though. Scotty Scheffler, I mean, another one of these mm. uh, under 30s dominating the game. I believe all five... Uh, golfers, the top five, sorry, in the world golf rankings are under 30 for the first time ever. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I feel like this youth movement has been coming for quite some time. And if anything, I think it's it just like any other top level sport, your your window is going to be shorter. But big things for him. He seems like a pretty cool, calm character with no real major issues in his game. Yeah, he looks he looks quite handy, doesn't he? Um, and you're right. I, his attitude is he was unflappable down down the stretch. And he just made pars, and pars was it was just one of those tournaments where pars was good enough. Um, and his problem was just breaking through to get one. Now that he's got one, he suddenly got two, and you can yeah. kind of see that he's not that far out. If you look at the top five in the world, they have actually separated themselves from six downwards a bit. Like Scheffler, Kentley, Hovland, Morikawa, and Ram, they're going to be fighting over that number one spot for the rest of the rest of this year, I think. So, yeah, he's legit. They're, they're five pretty pretty good golfers, aren't they? I mean, you're, you're talking some seriously good golfers there. Um, I was quite surprised when when I, when I saw that Scotty Sheffield was under thirty actually because he doesn't. I don't know. It's just something. I don't know what it is about him. Maybe he's just one of those guys. He seems seems older than he is. But yeah, I was quite surprised to hear that he was under thirty. So it's interesting. None, like, of the, none of those top five, though, we fear to say, are the the leading brands in golf. Like no. you'd think of a Thomas, yep. a Smith. Mm. Um, mm. Even a DJ, like they're not, they're definitely not the most publicly not the super, accessible golfers. No, they're not the superstar kind of um, the marquee or what we think of as the marquee players at all. And maybe they need to change that because they're clearly the guys who are performing and should be those marquee players, but they don't have that kind of marquee personality or marketing at the moment. Maybe uh, with yeah, the exception, possibly, of I mean, I, I suppose you could say Ram does to a certain degree outside of the States too, and, and maybe Colt Morikawa, but yeah. Certainly not the same profile. I think you could easily make the debate that Morikawa and Rand, one of, if not both, should be the face of golf. 
Um, 100% agree. There, there's no reason that they shouldn't be. I find it interesting. Like the, I look at the top five and I don't think of them as any of them as being, they're all amazingly good, but I don't think of them as being world beaters. Like I don't mm. think of them like, as like peak Rory when we all thought that maybe he was going to go on and be the next Tiger or anything. Like they don't strike fear. If, if I was ranked six to 50 in the world, I wouldn't be going, oh, you know, I'm really scared that John Rahm and Morikawa are in this field. Um, yeah. Golf's, golf's hard. Golf's deep. So mm. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's such a great point. Yeah. There's not, they don't have that intimidation factor because there's just so many good players around now. Eh? Mm. Yep. Just going back to uh, Woodland, and I do want to discuss the bunker shot. He Because the ball was a little bit plugged, that one on 17 for him. But I just mm. thought, mentally, his swing he took in that bunker, I mean, that looked like a hack amateur man that was exceptionally nervous. I mean, he took a tiny little back swing, and basically it was, I mean, it was a stabby. terrible swing. It was stabby. It, didn't he? Yeah. he did. So my question is not yeah. so much about poor Woodland. And yes, I, he was my horse for the week, so I was very angry at him at that moment. But uh, mental strength as a golfer, so not just talking about the PGA Tour event, but where do you think coming down those last two or three holes in a golf tournament, where do you think it's most important? And, and, you know, actually I'm talking about the different shots you may hit. Where do you think it's most important? And where do you think you would be shitting your pants the most if it was you leading a golf tournament of note with uh, three holes to go? Well, for me, it, it, it's standing on the tee. You get, you get, get your ball in play. And that's, yeah, so for me personally, that's where I'd be crapping myself. And, and they, they, don't, they seem to kind of trust their swing. They don't, I guess they have, they have driver swings or, and that the, they do sort of, that they have, can go to. But for me, that's where it would be is just getting the ball off the tee and in play, not, not topping one, <laughs> basically. Yeah. I think there's certainly, you see some frailties in these golfers when they lead. And I think we talked about this in regards to the Omaha scramble, but the ability to stay attacking when you're leading um, and not go defensive. And I'm not say, saying Woodland did. I mean, he hit the ball right at the pin. He was, you know, a metre short. But the next couple of shots, whether he was scared of flying one over, I'm not sure. But yeah, for me, I agree. The long shot, I feel like as long as you're in play, you're in play. But getting off the tee, I mean, I genuinely have fears of missing the ball like once you're around the green I feel like you kind of just hack it up there and make it work but boy it would be tough to tee off you know with with hundreds of people around and trying to actually get the ball on the ground I feel like that'd be a battle just getting the ball on the bloody tee so uh the mental strength it does it's always interesting to see a golfer to some extent fall apart yeah Uh, and I think that Gary Woodland he's been injured for quite a while a time he's only just kind of getting back towards the kind of level that he was playing at a couple of years ago, you know, where he's a major winner. Um, I have no doubt that there was probably some nerves in there. Like he knew what a big shot that was and, you know, it can get, it can get to anybody. Um, and that was a, it's a bloody hard, like 17 and 18 were just hard holes. He made a he double, double. And he like, I, do you know the approach on 18? Like the way that green is yeah. cut? Like, if you're not on the right-hand side of the fairway, which is right beside the water, there was, you were trying to hit it to 80 feet. Like, that was your goal, was to hit it to 80 feet and hope you got a two-putt. I mean, it's hard to play attack and golf um, on, the, on the last hole there. And I think there's a, there's a famous shot the Tiger had in there and a putty made for birdie to win it. And just how, with the pin in always that position, Geez, you had to, there wasn't many birdies made that day. So, yeah, he's close though, Woodland. It was a good pick, Casey. Unlucky. Um, just thinking going back to the question about mental frailty as golfers, is there a shot that you guys 
really fear, or maybe I'll say a result that I you really fear that actually doesn't happen that often, but you can't get out of your head. I've just been of late. I've been fearing this ridiculous pull with my irons left, like a real snap hook pull. And I actually really don't do it very often. Then I set up to protect against it almost every iron for the one in like 30 times it happens or one in probably 50 times it happens. But it's such a big fear of mine that I'll do this ugly snap hook that I like, I overthink it. Do you have like a, a shot you protect, which really is shouldn't be something in your head you just can't let go of? Like it's, it seems worse than it is. Yeah, the 30, 40 metre shot where I'm trying to hit it high over something. Um, I have a great fear of blading it about 100 metres straight along the ground or into whatever it is I'm trying to hit over. That one's the one that gets in my head, particularly off a, a thin lie or something. But yeah, that's that's the shot that I have. Well, yeah, Casey, you would you know my course. You've, you've played it many, many times, and you know that on the 1st and the 18th in particular, there is a car park and a main, <laughs> yes. road, and a main road. That's and exactly that is, what I was looking for. a like. nightmare. Yes. So the first, first, first team of my traditional ball flight has always been a, a draw slash hook. If I'm, I, like to, I like to think it's a good, it's a nice draw when I'm hitting it well. So it's always kind of set up for me because I can kind of almost aim at the bus stop on the, on the side road and it'll draw back into the fairway. But I did go through a period um, for whatever reason, where the ball just I, I had to miss the, the total opposite, which was a, a, a massive, massive fadey cut, which was basically on the road. And when you've put two or three on the road, particularly oh. on, a, on, a, on a Saturday morning when there's cars oh. and buses and traffic, it's just Awful. a nightmare. And um, I've put a, yeah, same thing on, on 18 where there's a car park. And I have, I have put a ball through the back windscreen of somebody's car. Oh. Um, so it's it, those sort of, that sort of scar tissue, you just, you just can't recover from it, you know. It's, oh, yeah. it's always there. It's always agree. there. Yeah. You guys know. So the, uh, that's a the, massive mental frailty for me. If you guys know the number nine at Remuera, the dog leg, extreme dog leg left, cuts at ninety degrees. I uh, I'm not sure if I told this story in the podcast or not, but I put a ball through a house's ranch slider door on that one. That was a pulled iron hard left. I mean, I forever and a day when I used to play that course, I would aim. I don't know, 20 metres to the right of the green. I didn't even care. I just didn't want to hit the ranch slider again. Like I, I very rarely even got within Kiwi of making a par at that because I was just so convinced I didn't want to hit the ranch slider that anything not breaking the ranch slider was a success on that hole from that day onwards. And, and yeah, how do you get rid of that scar tissue? I mean, when you break someone's car or ranch slider, you don't want a bar well, of hitting the ball straight. It's my, my body just will not physically let me play a golf shot on, on my, my second on 18 and, and even at the moment my tee shot on one. They both they both have that same danger of of the big cut for a left hander into the car park. So I end up decelerating and clo and closing the club face and just playing the sort of ice hockey slap shot that <laughs> that is just like a low worm burning hook. And it's yeah, I mean, but the thing is, I actually walk off the tee or play this walk away thinking, well, at least I didn't hit it in the car park. You know, that's how bad it is. It really <laughs> is. It's just yeah. I don't yeah. I know. I honestly don't think there's really much I can do to. Because it's always going to be there, you know? Well, not when you're um, actually hurting someone's property. Because in the end, you're like, yeah. that's actually not worth the risk of hitting the ball. Um, the that's hole. right. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Now, there's some yeah. genuine... You, you sort of start to feel those yippy feelings when you've got something like totally. that that can happen. Yeah. Because yeah. it's actually out of your control. The involuntary yeah. movement won't allow it. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, we shouldn't talk about the yips. We'll never talk about that <laughs> word again. Hey, just quickly on pro golf. Um the, the PIP was announced this week, the ridiculous PIP, which was only ever really 
a way to pay the uh, the top ten players or eight players some extra money, and uh, and Tiger won it, which highlights how ridiculous the pip was, considering that he uh, didn't play a single PGA Tour event other than the PNC Classic all year. But uh, I think the pip was shown for what it is, which was just a bonus for the top eight guys. But any uh, thoughts that disagree with that? No, it did just show exactly what it was, really. Um, and, and the very fact that he tweeted on tweeted on whatever day it was last week in response to Phil's tweet, where Phil had, Phil had tweeted out congratulating his fans and, and the crazies, I think he called them, for helping him win the pip because he thought he had. And then t- turned out Tiger had, and it was just a one-word retweet, oops, which just about broke the internet, shows you that really, I mean, he does deserve to win it because he, he can say one word and, and, and shift the needle, you know, so... I think but all the other players, yeah. yeah, all the players yeah. mention it, right? They no one has a bad word to say about Tiger. All the other pros, because they know that they're probably ten times as rich as they would have been they if he are. didn't come along. They are. He's yep. he's yep. bought them their houses and their cars. Yep. So yep. Ind- cool. indirectly, but without him, they wouldn't have them. So yeah. Yes. They're never going to approach him. Even the the you know, the threat of him coming back and playing is, is it keeps more eyes on golf. So yeah, mm. they, they they would love that guy never to formally retire. No. Absolutely yep. not. Hey, um, okay, we'll park that. We've talked about the pip too much. We're interested to see what happens within the next couple of years. But uh, we should just quickly preview the players, um, often referred to as the fifth major. We've talked a lot of pro golf tonight, so we won't talk a lot about it. But uh, always a fun, a fun week. Probably the strongest golf field all year, actually, stronger than all the majors. Uh, yeah, the players. Is it? Is it for you guys? Is it? Is it up there with the major in terms of viewing? Do you consider it? Sort of premium viewing? Yeah, I consider it premium viewing. Um, it's got good history. It's a good course. Um, always attracts the best fields. Attracting the best field is very much a lure. But it means something to the players. Um, and if it means something to the players, then you see a bit more emotion. And I like seeing emotion. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it does. It, it does mean a little bit more. So, yeah, I'll be, I'll be watching. I yeah. think it certainly benefits from being at the same course. I mean, obviously the seventeenth mm-hmm. is a famous hole, but yep. um, it's the old story, right? When you're at the same course every year as a fan, you get to understand the course and, and where the holes are. It's got some good risk reward par fours, and certainly that seventeenth is nothing short of a, uh, a must must watch golf event each year. But um, yeah, yeah, who who guys got? Who's your pick? I'm going Rory. I think, Rory's a bit, I, think, I think Rory's a bit damaged at the moment, Matt. I think he's, I, he's, got, he's, he's got some choking genes in there. That well, I'm a little he's, bit unsure he, about. He's, he's certainly got some issues from... He's got the same issues we had at the Omaha Scramble. He's great until he gets to like 100 <laughs> metres out. And that's where he's, that's where he's having a, a few struggles at the moment. But I, I just feel he's, he's there or thereabouts. And, and if he just finds the right setup for him and, yeah, just a couple of things go his way, he could, he could certainly win. So he'd be my man. Born, born. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to go outside the conventional thinking. Uh, I'm going to go with Siwoo Kim, oh. former winner. Mm. Former, former winner. Uh, absolutely plays lights out on this course. He's having a great season this year. Uh, yeah, there you go. Siwoo Kim. I, um, I, hope, I hope to see that in your picks then, Vaughn. Yes. I think you will see him in, yeah, in my good, picks. Good. Yep. I'm having trouble not loving Victor Hovland at the moment. I feel like that man yeah. is a pretty calm, cool, collected character who just seems to be mm. 
right up there in terms of his backing himself. So I think he's in there for me. I'm not sure um, how how proficient he is at this course. I believe he's probably only playing it for the what, second time, maybe. So, yeah, I mean, look, it is a great tournament. And they're all there. But uh, I've probably always got a soft spot for Justin Thomas. I, I think he's always going to have my sort of um, yep. my favourite tag in my mind. But I think Hovland's a tough one to beat. Yeah. So, boys, my baffler for this week. I've got oh, a, yeah. I've got a, I've got a players-related baffler. Excellent. So, twen- it's the 20th anniversary of Craig Perks winning. Is it really? Oh, sorry, the players. 20, 2002, that was, Craig Perks. So, three little quick, quick ones for you here. Can you name the four Kiwis that were in the field that week? Four? Oh, four? Jesus. Wow. What a luck can we imagine? Having four Kiwis in a golf yeah, and a I can, do it easy. I can do it easy, I reckon. Perks, Campbell, Wait, and Tatarangi. Tatarangi. Three out of four. Okay, okay. So Perks, obviously. I yeah. think Tatarangi's a given. Uh, or is he a given? He's not giving much away. Uh, who else could have been around at that particular time? So it time? wasn't Tatarangi. Oh, it wasn't Tatarangi. Was it the was it the great was it was it the great man? Was it Stephen Elka? No, no, no. It's it's, oh. it's someone who will be live from this week. Oh, no, Frank. Frank, 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 Frank the not, Tank. So so Frank the Tank and Grant Wait missed the cut. Cambo had a tie for eleventh. Really? And C- Craig Perks won. Who who came second to Craig Perks? I knew you were going to ask that question. I a Trinidadian. Was it? Here, I'll give you a little clue. A Trinidadian. Oh. Stephen, Stephen Ames. Stephen Ames. Yeah. Stephen Ames. Ames, correct. How many putts did Craig Perks have in the last three holes? Not many. I remember that. Um, two. One. One, correct. He chipped in on 16, hit his, uh, hit his approach into the, into the collar on the edge of the green and hit a, hit a little sort of uh, lob wedge out onto the green and hold it. 28-footer for, for Birdie on 17, just played into the middle of the green. 18, horrible tee shot into the trees. Barely got it back to the fairway. Put his third, third shot through the back of the green again into the thick rough and chipped in again with like a ridiculous floppy little thing onto the green, just rolled it straight in. So he had one putt in three holes. Played the last, played the last three in eagle birdie par to win the tournament. Is he, bad, uh, is, is he still doing some commentating? He still pops up now. And then, yeah, I think he? he is. Yeah. Yep. He seems to be on like the world feed for um, some of the tournaments we see. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a guy, a bit like Baker Finch and a few of them gave the game away because he got the total yips with the driver. Just could not keep the ball on the planet and gave, just gave golf away completely. It's a, um, mm. it's a good it's I feel a good I know how he feels. Well, yeah, it's a good example of... <laughs> You only need to win one decent event, right? And, and pretty much your career's made because he really did nothing yep. else other than that event. But hey, you win, yeah. the, you win the players. And we, we had him in our top 10 in New Zealand golfers, right? And Absolutely. It was based on one yeah, of yeah. Mm. Yep. I still remember it. I was living in Melbourne at the time. And uh, I remember sitting in our cantina watching it, uh, obviously on a Monday, Monday morning. And it was, just, it was just ridiculous. Like the shots he hit on those... Like you wouldn't hit, you'd be lucky to hit one of them a year, let alone hit yep. three of them in a row. And you know, the biggest event outside of a major was just yeah, it was know, the most extraordinary finish, really. It's just yeah, yeah, ten minutes or half half an hour probably of of like you say, lightning in a bottle won't change your life, you know. Yep. Yeah. Is uh, is Danny Lee in the field this week? I'm I'm assuming he is. 
I would imagine yes, yeah. Maybe Danny yeah, Lee be. will uh, post a tribute round to uh, Craig Perks. We'd all love to see that. Oh, that would that would be something to talk about next week. So, um, yeah. Do you reckon Danny Lee and Craig Perks have ever spoken to each other? I imagine so. I mean, how many Kiwis would legitimately be on tour at the same time in any shape or form? I would, one would imagine so. Hmm. I guess they'd probably catch up. With, yeah. What, there's only how many Kiwis are there over there? There'd be Wilk, Tim Wilkinson's on Corn Ferry, I think. Danny Lee, the Elk. Yeah, the elk I'm, su- I'm, su- I'm surprised you guys elk. aren't. Why don't you guys? I want you to go out and record now after claiming the Elk. I want you to tell me what's Tim Wilkinson going to do on the senior tour? Because if you, I, I think you've got to be clear. You can't just take someone who starts playing well. I want to know: Are you going to be on Tim Wilkinson? Do you think he's going to be the next, the next Stephen Elker? No. <laughs> I'm not on the Wilkinson train. I'm not on the Wilkinson train. I'm on the Elka train. You yeah. can have, so, you know what? Yeah. You can have, you're on the Wilkinson train, <laughs> Casey. It yeah. is your train. You you drive that bad boy. Well, I'm yeah. just proving if Wilkinson comes through and dominates the senior tour as Elka has, you know, had doses of, then that just highlights that it's a, just a, it's a slap and giggle bloody league. So just keep that in mind. I think he's a lefty. Isn't he one of your, your bloody he is guys? A lefty. Yeah, he's one of my mob. Yeah, yeah, Greg Chalmers did, did all right in the. Uh, we haven't talked about Puerto Rico boys. We haven't talked about the, the magnificent Puerto Rico tournament. We're not. There's probably We're, a reason for that. We assume that yeah. there was a TV deal that had to be, or a sponsorship deal that had to be carried out, and no one cares. No, uh, no I, one there was a, there was actually a highlight from from that event, and that oh. was the stone the stone cold motherless last finish of Frank Licklight of the Third, <laughs> who was picked by one of us in our competition. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. I almost, I, I think you should almost get bonus points for picking somebody that finished Stone Cold Modelist last in an alternate event. Well, that is actually. And I, and I even impressive. actually, I, and to be, to double down on, I even backed him at the TAB for a top 30 as well. I is actually, you? after, you, after yeah. you picked him, I, I also backed him on the off chance. Embarrassing. Yeah. 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 I actually think I, there's I an interesting. Him and a guy called, um, him and a guy called Hiram Salifa who, again, was paying probably the highest odds of anybody in the field and missed the cut by a long, long way. Yeah, the interesting. Don't, aren't wrong. In addition to our uh, picks competition, maybe we can discuss that in a bonus 100 points if you pick the person who comes dead last, if you happen to pick them. That would be an interesting uh, novelty yep. to your picks. But anyway, hey, our week in golf, men, outside of the pro stuff, um, long gone, pros, it's a good week, but we'll talk about the players when it comes up. Uh, what was happening in your week of golf? I, I do have a, we, I had a mental sort of, uh, or a moral challenge, which I'm happy to talk about. But uh, Grant, you, uh, you you flirted with a breaking 90, then uh, oh. managed to capitulate at the end? Managed to capitulate again, yeah. It's looking really good, actually. And um, had a horrible three-putt. It looked like one of those three-putts that, the, that they were having on the weekend at Bay Hill. Um, a three-putt from about three feet that just broke my spirit. And... Um, yeah, missed by a couple of shots again. It's getting to be a bit of a mental issue now, to be honest. I'm thinking too much about it. It's, I don't know. Yeah, but I felt like I was playing all right. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to a change of scenery, Casey. I'm, I'm, I'm officially a member of a different club as of today. So, um, Wonderful. change of scenery may, may nice. well do me, um, do me the world of good. Will be a uh, a wonderful two. Will be a best ball team in no time. It'll be great. Yeah, yeah. I'll, um, I'll, I'll be the. I'll be the 6.30 a.m. specialist as well soon. So. Yes, well, that, that is a good segue into my challenge, and we've discussed this on previous week's podcast, so nothing new, but uh, 
I did play, uh, what was it, one day last week, early, um, Friday actually, and uh, yeah, I, I deliberately went out there. Normally I walk from the car park to the first tee, which is about 20 metres. I put my tee in the ground and go. It's not the best way to prepare for a round of golf, to be fair. But this time I made a conscious effort to uh, to practice. I just, I'm not going to score the first nine holes. I'm going to play a couple of balls and I'm going to I'm actually try shots that I, I'm not comfortable with. And I did that and it was great. It was fun. But then I actually got to about hole six and I was like, this sucks. Like I need to start scoring because I realized I actually wanted to score. So I battled through to hole 10, which is hole nine at Omaha currently. And, uh, and decided to formally put in a card at that point. Played the first couple of holes by myself, then ran into the back nine or the nine hole field and played with a bunch of ladies. Um, yeah, I shot, I think, I'm not really sure because it's nine holes. And for, and I believe it might have been my best nine hole score ever. I shot even par, three birdies, three pars, uh, three bogeys. So normally something to celebrate. But as you guys know, I was talking to you at the time and I was feeling very uncomfortable about it. Uh, probably uncomfortable for two reasons. One, I warmed up for nine holes. Um, is that a bad thing? Well, I think we decided it's no different than going to the range. I do have a challenge in that the nine hole scorecards currently, they hold, I believe, the same weighting as an 18 hole scorecard for your 18 hole handicap. So one of the challenges I do have is I think golf is a game about keeping your head together for four hours. And yet you can put in a nine hole card, which contributes to your 18 hole handicap. I think in the past it used to group two nine hole rounds together at least, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it put me down to a single-figure handicapper. I don't believe I'm a single-figure handicapper right now. I, I'm very much suffering from the uh, the Vaughan Vaughan problem of being reasonably good on one course in a very um, artificial scenario of playing early morning, playing very fast. Um, so yeah, basically, I'm I am you, Vaughan, and uh, I'm feeling very uncomfortable about it. To be fair. Well, if you're if you're me, you should be feeling great about it. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. You're you're. It means I can ha start hassling about all the things you've been hassling me for years about. It's it's awesome. No, I, I think it's completely legal. Um, what's the difference of warming up for for sixty minutes or ninety minutes on the range as opposed to playing um, the other nine? I did think that if you went back and started on the hole that you had started practicing on that nine and just played that nine, that that might have been. That might have been debatable, but you played a, a different nine holes to the nine holes you warmed up on. So, yeah, my only issue with it is uh, the waiting. Like the waiting is just weird. They've, they haven't got it right, New Zealand golf. They need to. It's need global, to I should say. It's not New Zealand golf. It's a global rule. So you can just well, the, nine the global. Now. Sorry, New Zealand golf. Yes. Global rules. You should look at it like that's just not right. You you can't reward nine holes the same as eighteen. Um, yeah, and and I don't even think you should reward it to a fifty percent level because it's just not that's not quite right either um but yeah mate take it be happy yeah it, it was a it was a round i chipped in on the uh the what is it the fifth uh 14th hole which is a very tough hole so you know when you're starting to get around like that i'd already had a birdie before that i chipped in on the 14th from about 15 meters away for a birdie you kind of know you're having one of those days and it was just a case of keeping it together with my old lady friends um it doesn't happen very often in my golf, I should add, but yeah, sometimes when you're playing with uh, with oldies, men or women, and you're having one of those days where you're hitting the ball pretty well, they do make you feel like you're, uh, you know, Tiger Woods or bloody John Rahm when you're hitting the ball. It's uh, it's an interesting feeling because you know you're not that good, but these guys are looking at you like you're, you know, you should be a pro. And I'm like, you, you should need to come back tomorrow when I'm slicing them in the ocean. But uh, it's always an interesting feeling when people are complimenting you and your game. Isn't that like... Um when you're out on your own like that, Casey, and you get asked to 
or offered the chance to play through. Oh. Is there any is there anything worse than the tee shot you ha- you have to hit when when somebody's called you through like that? The risk reward component of that shot is huge though, because if you're playing with people that aren't necessarily better than you or you're going through them, your chances to look like a pro at that moment are huge. But yes, it, it doesn't, I'd say probably, well, I mean, to be fair, I only probably hit one shot in five I like anyway, so it's probably no different than that. But uh, yes, it's a, it's always an interesting risk-reward moment, trying not to rush when ultimately you are rushing. It's a uh, scary proposition, but these ladies thought I was quite something, so that was my little moment of, in mm-hmm. the sun. Vaughan, you didn't, you, uh, you're still down with the COVID, right? You're still uh, out of action. Um, so you missed the Bottle Lake uh, Senior Open or whatever the hell it was. Um, uh, Canterbury, hey, right? can- Canterbury match play, mate. Canterbury match play. Yeah, that's play. right. I think Grant raised an interesting question in our sort of pre-podcast chat about how we feel when our courses are out of action with events like this. Is it something that bothers us or is it sort of just an acceptable part of being a golf member? Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, it's an acceptable part of being a golf member. And, you know, unfortunately, you two don't um, belong to an elite golf club like myself that has has these type of big events um, to really understand exactly what it's like but uh you just accept that that's what you get for paying your membership at, at a really good golf course that, that they're going to host um top-notch events and you've got to sling your hook elsewhere for for the weekend so yeah it's, it's okay it's the way it is we've actually we actually do now belong both of us to omaha they host a, a tournament on the new zealand pga uh, circuit so we are a tournament golf course as opposed oh, to the my only, apologies the only my golf apologies. course in christchurch and, um, that uh, allows yeah. them to go and yeah, and the reason I kind of brought that up, obviously, it kind of segued with what Vaughan had said about them holding that tournament at Bottle Lake. Um, well, was it the New Zealand Mini Putt Champs or something? Um, what a ridiculous place to win a tournament! Like, you, you, yeah, someone, right. some, someone somewhere, like I don't know who it is, they won this tournament, right? And it's it's really cool. You won the Canterbury Senior Match Play, and someone's going to go, "Where'd you win all, it?" You're going to have to go like, levels. you're going to have to go levels, like, mate. okay, you're going to have to go like, women's masters, the whole lot. Exactly. But remember that poor bastard on Monday morning? He's going to be at his water cooler virtual probably these days and someone's going to say oh where'd you win and he's going to go like bottle lake and it's going to be like oh like it's just it's just i feel sorry for that person like they don't want to celebrate the victory at bottle lake of course they do mate of course they do um and omaha beach funnily enough someone had mentioned something to me the other day it's um it's in the top 10 nudist beaches in new zealand what's what's going on with that fellas uh it's- I can genuinely say, and I've been to the beach many times this summer. Oh, been, oh, well, well, let's keep it clean, eh? Come on. Now. I've seen <laughs> zero instances Come of on. nudity. So mm. you, right. you, okay. you might be talking to some people in particular that want it to be the top 10, but I don't yeah. believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. Um, Maybe I was misinformed. I'm done. Just, doing, yeah. just passing on what, was, what I was told. Yeah. But, yeah, I think as far as that kind of thing with the courses, is, it's, a, it's a, a legitimate kind of thing. And my mates were griping big time on the weekend actually because there's been two or three weeks in a row where things have been quite interrupted there was the New Zealand long drive champs at Pupuki and then there'd been some pe- some some pennants on and there'd been a few other things so there'd been two or three weeks in a row where they'd only been able to play like nine holes instead of their usual 18 um, and I think I think to be fair a lot of it was has been compressed because of COVID and there were quite a few mm-hmm. things that were quite a few events that were postponed and they're trying to get them through so normally it's not that bad but I think it is just a something that club members have to accept because that's that's how clubs kind of fund what they do really they have to have corporate days and they have to host these things um as a way to sort of you know the, the other alternative is have a pristine course that you're you're the only people who ever play on but you got to pay a hell of a lot more money for it so mm. yeah did they get a, um, offered did they get offered like alternate um courses or preferential tea times at 
Other places? Nah, if it's if the greens are cored, they generally do. But for things like that, no, it, they don't. And that's possibly why I think maybe they they were gripping a bit too because yeah. it wasn't another alternative yet. So yeah, and and I guess that's too because golf is having a bit of a boom at the moment. So all courses have have got pressure on them and are, and, are, and are pretty full. So it's yeah, everybody's in the same boat really. Absolutely, mm. um, men. We've got that part in the, the podcast. We've got a couple of questions from the audience. Um, so we'll rip into them, uh, usually the, the most fun we have on this, on the segment. So first question today is, what's, what is your favourite sports movie and what is your favourite golf movie? So they may be the same. Uh, you may have two or three you want to bring up, but uh, what is your favourite sports movie and what is your favourite golf movie? Vaughan, I know you've put a lot of time into this. I'm intrigued to know your answers. I have. I, I, honestly, it's very hard to select one. And I actually know that I'm going to select the same one as you. So I'll select a few. Uh, Moneyball is, without a shadow of a doubt, my favourite sports movie. Just a flawless movie. Brad Pitt's Brad Pitt. Uh, but just the business side of sport, and in particular American sport, always interests me. Um, and that does it better than any other uh, sports movie I can think of. Uh, I've had to pick a couple of others. From when I was a kid, I always loved um, Chariots of Fire. Uh, about the Olympics, still a great movie. Still, that music is synonymous with it. Bloody awesome! Uh, and if I took one that was a bit of fun, um, Kingpin, Casey Eden, you got a bit of Roy Munson about you. Um, yeah, fantastic movie. And if I got to pick a golf one, Tin Cup, because that's exactly how I like to play golf. And sometimes it works awesome. And yeah, sometimes it's not so good. But yeah, it's a great movie. In fact, I'm going to throw another one in. Field of Dreams. Kevin Costner. Man, how good is that movie? Yeah, that's it. I like it. Vaughan? Oh, sorry, no. Grant? Yeah, uh, so f- as far as gen- sports movies in general, um, I go with Vaughan. My number one, and I couldn't even tell you how many times I've watched it, would be Field of Dreams. Um, I guess I'm probably a bit of an old sentimental. So um, that's my absolute favourite. Um, other ones, other ones of worthy of mention, Hoosiers. Have you guys seen Hoosiers? Yeah, great movie. Dennis Hopper about the Indiana yep. high school basketball team, uh, college or high school. Um, that's that's great. Um, really good ba- baseball movie called The Natural with Robert Redford. That was some um, pretty pretty good film. Um, and the, you can't go past the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Tell um, for for a bit of NASCAR. Very very funny film. I love that film. Um, Golf films, probably, yeah, Tin Cup is right up there. I mean, I'm a ma- massive Kevin Costner fan. Um, and The Greatest Game Ever Played. I don't know if you, it was a terrific yes. book, and they, and they made a pretty decent movie out of it too, actually. So, yeah, that was good. But the Francis Wee May story. Absolutely. Well, I, I, you guys have sort of grabbed all mine, but I'll add a few extras. And Moneyball for me, absolutely. I mean, I'm a baseball fan. Tragic, and I think that the science behind that, that movie... Yeah. Given it was a true story, pretty cool. And the fact that they use real players in it, well, talking about real player names was better. I made it awesome. Um, I, as a young kid, I remember watching Major League, once again, a baseball movie. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah, that's yeah. pretty yeah. cool. Major League's up there. Uh, it's one yeah. of the first ones I remember. Um, golf, I mean, I was going to say the greatest game ever played, too. I think that's a pretty cool movie. I mean, it's not a ton of golf movies, um, but that was one that stood out to me. Um, I remember the legend of Bag of Arts. It was a little bit of yep. golf in it. So yep. those two yep. for me. Yeah. Where, um, where do we Where do we sit on Happy Gilmore? Nah, no rubbish. I mean, it's good, easy to watch. But that's not a golf movie. Yeah. Okay. Waterbury Open. 
and the play, and, yeah, and the players, probably the, the, mo- players probably, the probably the most famous golf movie. To be fair, is probably yeah, yeah. Happy Gilmore. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, obviously, I've got a little bit of a personal kind of uh, sort of story that parallels Dodgeball, the movie. But uh, certainly, Dodgeball for me is uh, an interesting one. Good watch, and uh, having somewhat lived out Dodgeball in real life, um, yeah, Dodgeball. So. There's my sport movies, but uh, look, there's never enough good sports movies coming out. Oh, remember the Titans? That's a good one, actually. A little bit of high school American, sort of college American stuff. So high school. Anything that gets the old uh, blood boiling. Mm. Nice. We, we picked yeah. a lot of baseball movies. Bull Durham, another one that was, yes. Yes. I, yeah. I really liked. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Baseball and movies just seem to, I seem to go together. They do. I think it's a... I think it's a Maybe the nature of the sport makes makes for great movies because there's a lot of a lot of stuff off the field that happens as well as some. Um, well, I think that the, they talk about the dog days of baseball and just the long yeah. seasons and the, just the yeah. the battle yeah. that goes on in those players. I mean, that that's baseball. It's it yeah. just yeah. it's a battle from you know for two hundred days or something like that. And I think it, it mm. makes for interesting stories. In fact, if you guys just off topic, are you guys familiar with all that the shit going on at the moment around the baseball kind of lockout? Is that of interest to anyone? Is that something that yeah, I've seen? been I've been trying yeah. to follow it, but can't quite get my head around it. So if you can if you can educate me at, at all, I would it'd be I'd be appreciated. Well, okay. So American sports traditionally, this isn't unique to baseball. It's happened in football. I believe it's happened in ice hockey, and it's I mean it, it's caused whole seasons to be lost. But essentially, every I don't know if it's five or ten years, they they organise a new collective bargaining agreement between the owners as a group, and the owners are Major League Baseball. They're represented by the um, the commissioner. So the owners effectively own baseball and then the players group is represented by a union. And in that time of collective bargain, collective bargaining agreement, they effectively come together and iron out a bunch of, of new rules, a bunch of new conditions and allowances, new salary caps, new minimum salaries, all sorts of, I mean, it, it's endless, including new rules. For example, they've agreed to a, I believe they've agreed to a new designated hitter rule across both leagues. So it's heaps and heaps of stuff. Um, but baseball is losing games. So the owners, and it depends who you believe. I mean, generally the players kind of are backed because the fans kind of side with the players because they always talk about millionaires versus billionaires, but they are losing games. They uh, they still need to have a spring training to give one to shape. So currently the major league players are locked out. They can't train and they can't be signed and stuff like that. So the ones that already have contracts are honoured, but effectively no one else can be signed and they've been locked out for a good 60 days or something now, maybe longer. So um, yeah, there's a bunch of conditions. What's interesting is that obviously neither party wins because the, the owners aren't making money through the games aren't going ahead and the players aren't either. So they will always come to a conclusion, but it's an ultimate standoff. And, and it's about some ridiculous things. I mean, it's it's usually about percentage of revenue and, and like salary caps, that kind of thing. And you've got teams that are quite happy spending $250 million a year and you've got teams that are quite happy spending 50. So it's all that kind of stuff that they're debating. But it's very messy. And I mean, if you... There was a strike back in the, I'm going to say the 90s. It could have been the 2000s. And it, I think it was the 90s. It caused they a lot of whole, base. Yeah, a whole season, basically. Yeah. And a ton of fans yeah. left the game. I mean, it is ridiculous yeah. as a fan. You're like, can you guys just sort it out? But I suppose what it does highlight is these leagues in America are businesses. They are not, you know, it's not like a rugby competition in New Zealand run by provincial unions and non-for-profit. This is a business. And the, the owners ultimately own the sport. So yeah. it's messy, but... Long story short, they're going to lose at least one, if not two or three weeks of of, uh, of baseball. I mean, it's not the first time I believe NBA's had strikes too, right, Vaughan? Yeah, he, they've, had he, they've had heaps of strikes. Um, 
and the collective bargaining agreements up again in, in a couple of years time and why they ever let it get to that point is always beyond me um just strike a deal so you don't even get to the get to this point because you know that it's coming up but yeah that's just it's the nature of american sport isn't it well and i, and I think vaughn it's all about that that L word that Mickelson's so fond of leverage. And you know, yep. if you sign it early, you don't have leverage, do you? If you if you run it to the brink and threaten to not play and not turn up, that's when you get the leverage. And that's why yep. it happens so late, I think. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's always the yeah. fans that lose, isn't it? Yep. It's interesting that like I mean this happens in all American sports, but you've got guys earning 40, 50 million dollars a year in baseball, then you've got the minimum salary, which is still quite a lot of money, of I think seven or eight hundred grand. And in most American sports, baseball's no different. In fact, it's probably leads the pack, that hierarchical pyramid type structure. You've got guys at the top, sort of, I guess it's the one time when there's a little few numbers of the people at the bottom kind of get a vote and try to force their hand a little bit because the ones at the top, they'll get their salaries regardless. But it's the one time the guys at the bottom kind of get thought about in terms of up, you know upgrading the minimum salary by 50 grand or something like that. So it's a, um, yeah, it, it's a really interesting time. And I suppose it's when you, you see the true, you know, honesty behind the owners, um, and even the players for that reason. I guess the reality is both sides need each other. So it's just as you said, leverage. Who's going to give in first? Which is yeah. it's sad for the sport, but that is that is professional sport. Yeah. I think the transparency of American sports makes it so interesting too, doesn't it? In the, in knowing what those guys earn and see, it, you know, being able to it gives you a much bit greater appreciation. Um, of yeah, the pressures that are on. If you look at the uh, if you look at the NBA, and you can just go to the ESPN site and, and have a look, and it'll it'll show you the roster for every team and exactly how much they mm. earn. And it just always seems crazy to me that you can have one NBA team can have two or three guys earning twenty five plus million, and then a whole bunch of guys earning like a million or two million or whatever the minimum is. And it's, so they're performing every night after night on the same team on the same court, and yet the guy you're passing the ball to is earning fifteen times more than you are. Well, and that comes down to the marketability of that athlete, right? Mm. Same thing in baseball. You might have a guy 10 average points better, so 0.1 of a percent kind of thing better, and yet he's worth 40 million and, and a rookie's worth 750,000. And mm. it comes down to, I suppose, the marketability of that player because, you know, it's not just how good you are, it's whether you sell you know, TV rights and, and seats around it. So, yeah, it's that's one of the problems in baseball, especially is currently a player signs for a six-year contract when they start in the majors so it's a long time before they get right. their kind of first free big free they earn some decent money towards the end but you know six years is a long time to kind of be under mm. team control that is a long time that is a long time i think rookie contracts in the nba are uh three years with either a player or a team option um yes. depending on depending on where you were uh, originally picked in the draft so you know the power the power in the the difference, I guess, to the NBA, to the other major sports is, and I know this is one of the reasons people get angry at LeBron, but the players don't, is he flipped the narrative um, in 2010 because it was a owner-driven league. He flipped the narrative on them, and it's been a player-driven league ever since. Um, the players drive the league, not the owners anymore. Um, whereas the NFL was the complete opposite. It is completely driven by, by ownership. They own the game, and you do what you do what they say, dare I say it. Um, so where does baseball kind of sit comparative to those two? I'd say owners. I mean, they've always had that school of thought like NFL. There's another player out there, particularly the bulk of the players. There's a few, obviously, that get paid a lot, but there's always going to be another 100 Latin Americans or 1,000 that will come up and be just as good. Same thing with the NFL, right? So 
ultimately, if you don't like it, go away. You don't have to be here. Yeah, yeah. interesting. And I think yep. it's, I don't know what I don't know if baseball's the same, but in NFL, I mean, if a, if an owner wants to sell a team, they can only sell it to somebody who the rest of the owners agree can buy it. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's similar similar in baseball essentially. Yeah, that's yeah. why so a lot I mean, of yeah talk about protect the status quo. I mean, you you're not gonna no turkey ever votes for an early Christmas, do they? So you're not gonna you're not gonna let an owner sell it to somebody who's going to want to come in and shake things up too much. Well, apparently that's part of the issue with this collective bargaining agreement is some of the other owners are angry at the New York Mets who have spent ungodly amounts of money in this offseason because ultimately that creates pressure on other owners to spend that money. So, mm. yeah, it's interesting because they, if they all kind of hold the line, the reality is these guys, the players, can complain, but they can't go and sign for another baseball league that's going to pay them anywhere near as much. So... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a messy part. And ultimately, someone said, I'm not sure which one of you guys said it, but it's all about the fans who lose, really. You know, it is the fans. It's like we pay the subscriptions and the TVs and they you know, buy all the bloody apparel and we're the ones that don't get to watch. So, uh, yep. yeah, enough about that. But to, hey, last, to finish up this week, we're going to make this a regular uh, feature of the podcast. Um, we're going we're gonna to discuss a course each that we've never discussed on the pod or we might have mentioned it in passing. We never really discussed it, but just a little bit of a New Zealand golf course chatter, like discuss the good courses in New Zealand. It doesn't have to be the big name courses in New Zealand, but a, a course that you think the people in New Zealand should know about, uh, a course that you enjoy. It could be anywhere throughout the country, uh, but a course you enjoy and, and one you think fondly of for whatever reason. So uh, we might have touched upon it, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's a good, a good feature on the podcast to discuss New Zealand golf. So does anyone want to uh, go first with their uh, golf gem? Yeah, I'll go. Um, so I've played many golf courses like you lads. It's quite hard to actually select one. But I went with one that I haven't played for a few years, which has made me uh, make a booking for a couple of weeks' time. And I yeah, either of you will have played it. Uh, it's called the Y Macquarie Gorge course. It's about 45 minutes outside of um, Christchurch. And the best way for me to describe it is you get very similar views to what you do at Terrace Downs when you're looking down the Rakaia Gorge. And Grant, I know you've got a you've got a, um, a photo on your on your screensaver um, looking down the famous hole, the par three um, there. Well, this is a country course. This isn't a resort course like uh, our good friends at, at Terrace Downs. This is your traditional um, country course $25 for an affiliated member um, I believe Bob Charles is the is the patron of, of the club um, eight full 18 holes um, you probably get a barbie, barbecue if you're there on a Saturday or a Sunday plays pretty short but what you're going there for is the views uh, the views are absolutely outstanding and there's a couple of high points um, where you get to look out over Waimakariri Gorge and get some pretty amazing views of the of the Southern Alps um, not a course that necessarily markets itself or probably even needs to market itself i wouldn't say it's it's one of the high-end golf courses but for views it's actually pretty hard to match um so yeah for 25 dollars affiliated go and check out why macaroon gorge that's my little gem for for canterbury for the week excellent i like it well i'll, I'll jump in next um i've gone with a slightly different theme for my course this week i, I was thinking what are those courses that you drive past on big long drives and i was thinking when you're heading down south from Auckland, you might be going to uh, Taupo, you're going somewhere. And, and as a golfer, when you drive past the golf course, it's a really irritating thing for me if I haven't played it. Even if it's a country course, even if it's a course that doesn't even look that good, I just want to have played it. And it irritates me when I drive past it. So 
I was thinking about what are the courses I've driven past and I just stopped one day and played with my good friend Justin. It was a T-Rail golf course. Um, it was, it's a par 65. It's a lot of par threes. I think it's eight of them. Um, it's a lot of up and down. I mean, it's far from a great golf course. I think it's also $25. But I just was thinking of those typical New Zealand golf courses that you drive past them many times in your life and you just have to stop and play. New Zealand has hundreds of these courses that you pass as you drive around that probably anywhere from $20 to $50. You get out, you play them, they break up a drive, you arrive at your destination three or four hours after you could have, but you have a great time doing it. T-Rail is one of those courses. So there's my course gym for the week, T-Rail. Nice, I like it. Actually, now that you've said that, I can't stop thinking about, and Grant, you've mentioned it before, about going past it many times, Terrace down oh, south. Such a good, it's funny, I was just talking to someone early this evening who um, has just, was a member at uh, Ranfilly, I think it was, and it's just changed to Terrace. $150 a year. I think it might possibly be the cheapest club in New Zealand. So, yeah. Outstanding. And it's bloody, bloody brilliant little nine-hole course, yeah. 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 Um, so, so my one is actually one kind of similar to Terrace, but it's actually up north in the Bay of Islands. So you go to the Bay of Islands and you're thinking Waitangi or Carrington or uh, Carrickfuss. Well, I want to give you an, another option. It's called Okaihau. And it's in, up, in the, up in the hills at the back of Kirikiri. It's a little nine-holer. Um, you, you, you can play it twice. They have a slightly different tee, tee setting for each one. And uh, it's just a really nice little uh, nine-hole course, yeah. And I, I played there. I had a, I've got a mate who lives in Kirikiri, and we went and played there a few times. And then we went once on a Saturday for their, um, for their scramble, for their roll-up. And, and it's one of the real typical country, country courses where everybody arrives and yeah, you go and you put your name on the board in the in the clubhouse. Everyone stands on the deck and has a rum before they go out. And then you go out, you play your eighteen holes. You come back, you write your own score on the scoreboard. No, I don't think there's any dot golf. There possibly is now. There certainly wasn't back then. You just put your Stableford's on the board. It was court bottles from the bar. Just bloody brilliance. Just what awesome. old, to me, real old school Kiwi. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, the course is not going to win any design awards, but it's fun to play and just a bloody great day out. Yeah. And 20, 20 or 25 bucks. So you can't argue with that. Actually, an interesting question about some of these courses that were laid out in New Zealand. I assume there was zero golf course architecture went into them, quite literally, probably nine farmers just working out where they could fit holes. And yet some of them yeah. have grown into quite interesting golf courses. So whether that's yeah. dumb luck or... Or, uh, or someone had some foresight, I'm not sure, but probably hundreds of New Zealand courses fall in that boat. Yeah. And it's usually a farmer with a tractor, isn't it? Or, some, or somebody knows somebody with a digger. And um, yeah, away they go. Yes, absolutely. Well, to end, end tonight's podcast, I always love a little bit of course chatter around things that could be happening. I spotted today a, uh, a Sikh job advertisement. Now, I have a, a Sikh ad always pops up for golf. I want to see every golf job in New Zealand because you just never know what the good job, golf jobs would be. But uh, a general manager came up for a golf course, an unnamed golf course on the Hibiscus Coast of all, mm. which is typically around uh, kind of uh, either Whangaparaa or further north. And it was, a, it was a, a course with an 18-hole championship course, um, a driving range, a par three course, and accommodation. And I really couldn't work out what course that was. I don't know if they're developing it. Maybe why knew he wouldn't it? No, I, I, it, it's not on the coast, is it? I, I thought it could be. Wow. Yeah, it's the Hibiscus Coast, which is the area, I guess. Doesn't have accommodation. It doesn't have accommodation, though. Oh, that's a point. No. See, that's a first-class resort, so I'm wondering if Gulf Harbour is building a resort. Mm. Hasn't got a nine-hole course, though, has it? It's got no, an 18. Well, no, no, it do, this doesn't yeah. have a nine-hole. It says a driving range, 
Oh, course. sorry, Drive. Par three. Players don't have a par three course. This is what I'm no. saying. Some, someone's that's, what, that's what made me think of why no, because they've got that, they've got the driving range in the Orchard Nine. So that's what made me, unless so the, they're putting the in some accommodation there, I don't know. An opportunity, an opportunity exists for a general manager to run a world-class resort complex on the Hibiscus Coast. The resort is being upgraded and developed over the next three years and will include an international golf course, hospitality services, a driving range, path three course, and accommodation. So, well, no, well, yeah. I, I, I figured maybe mm. Golf Harbour. Could maybe? be. Yeah, could be. Yeah. I I'm, I'm, I don't think it's a, it's certainly not a new golf course by the look of it. It's not really discussing mm. that, but uh, yeah. It was interesting. I didn't know if mm. Golf Harbour's got a par three course plan, but I think it'd be exciting if it did. Mm. Um, anyway, a little bit of golf banter for you. I'm sure there's mm, uh, mm. something going on in that part of the world. So, um, look, we'll wrap it up for the night, uh, gentlemen, players. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get our picks in and we'll have a good time uh, watching that. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get out and play. If you want, hopefully you break free from COVID. And Grant, let me know when you want to play Gemini. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Might have, okay, uh, man. Might, might be busy packing for a little while, but but we'll get there. I'm uh, I'm I'm sending out a couple of drives a night down to where your house is, just getting the range, getting to figure <laughs> out where the zone is. Yeah. Yep. Okay, Good man. Stuff. Thank you. We'll talk okay. later on. All right. Catch you later. Bye, boys. Bye. See you. See ya.